feels more familiar being down here. You're all family. So if I make mistakes, I can make mistakes in front of family, can't I? Yes. Not that I intend to, of course. Good morning. Welcome to St. Albans Baptist this morning. It's great to have you here. I absolutely love the fact that it's starting to feel like when the children's church goes out, about a quarter of the church leaves. That's a fantastic feeling from having no little ones for a while to suddenly having a lot of little ones. It's great. So this morning, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, looking specifically at chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. As you can see from the overheads up top, and that ages me because we don't have overheads anymore, they're PowerPoints. <laughs> it's been a while since we've had overheads, isn't it? Yes, Carl. So I've entitled this morning's sermon, God of the Harvest. And it's my intention to talk about our response to the call of God on our lives as we witness in the harvest around us taking a little time to identify that harvest, who it is, as well as taking just a little side trip to discuss the difference between arguing the scripture and having a good, robust discussion about the scripture with someone. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, or NASB. It's my favourite translation. It's the one I feel I get the most out of. Okay, so starting at verse 35, the very first word, Jesus. What a great way to start a verse, eh? Great way to start a sermon. Let's just pause here for a moment and just bask in the glory of that name. What comes to mind when you think of the name of Jesus? Is it love? Joy, peace, hope, faithfulness, gentleness, or is it holiness, righteousness, justice, mercy? Because his justice and righteousness are forever tempered by his mercy. Or is it healing, restoration? And salvation. All these terms are contained and associated with the name of Jesus, as well as light and truth. And I pray this morning that it'll be his light and his truth that shines forth. Let us continue reading from verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. 
When I first looked at these verses, I thought, easy. They split nicely up into three parts. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and then what Jesus said. Now, many decades ago, when I did my diploma of ministry, our preaching tutor taught us that no matter what our subject, there should only be three easy steps to link it to Jesus. Well, I got lucky with these verses, didn't I? So I thought I could take these three parts of our section of Scripture and look at them separately, verse by verse. But the more I looked into them, the more my the more I formulated my thoughts, the more I kept branching off into other scriptures, other avenues of thoughts, my brain started formulating other thoughts and I started hearing down other various rabbit holes. But then I found, while I was doing my research, a warning from RVG Tusker. He's the editor of the Tyndale uh, New Testament Commentaries. Now, he says not to take these verses separately, right? His warning is that they must be read in conjunction with the entirety of chapter 9 and chapter 10. As, the, as in this narrative, the thoughts and the teachings of Matthew are woven throughout the chapters. Now, I'll just take a moment here to explain that I drew on the views of many different biblical theologians and scholars, of the likes of William Tyndale, the Tyndale Commentaries, who was a leading figure in the Protestant Reformation, translating the Bible from Latin to English, which eventually uh, lent to his uh, execution. Um, and he is considered the father of the English translation Bibles. I use commentaries like Expositor's Bible Commentaries, Black's New Testament, and that's a lot of hard work. Um, and the InterVarsity Fellowship New Bible Commentaries, one of my favourites. All of which draw on a different range of biblical scholars, different thoughts, and bring them in. Uh, so you can compare one from the other. And of course, my favourites. William Barclay and Charles Spurgeon. Arguably the greatest theologian and preacher the Baptist movement has ever produced. And of course, since we're a Baptist church, I get extra brownie points for mentioning Spurgeon. Oh, good, you laughed at that one. <laughs> I mention these not to show how bright I am, but just to show you the type of foundation that I'm building the sermon on. There's one other resource that I want to share at this point, and I came upon it quite accidentally. And it helps with laying out that foundation, and it helps keep clarify my thought process um, and the flow of the sermon later. When I was doing my research, I came across the Tonic ma Magazine. Now, it's a resource for non-profit organisations put out by Exalt, and the Neighbourhood Trust have a number of copies. Sometimes Rowana brings them home, and I pick them up and flick through them. They have some quite good articles. This particular copy had an article on conflict management, and there were two quotes that jumped out at me. The first is, misunderstanding is the cause of 90% of conflict. G 
goes on to explain that when we don't actively listen and try to understand the other person's point of view, we misunderstand what's going on, and that's where conflict comes from. Second quote is that 10% of conflict is due to difference. The other 90% is due to delivery and tone of voice. That's how you speak to people. When we argue, we stop listening to each other. And instead of sharing our beliefs, it starts to become a, we're right, you're wrong, to be right, you must come to my opinion. And that just, only, that just puts the others back up. As the tone raises, as we get harder in our positions, the other person gets entrenched in their positions, we're no longer talking to each other, we're talking at each other. And that's not good. A robust, healthy discussion, however, is a different matter. It's where we are actively listening to the other point, person's point of view. Okay? We're trying to understand where they're coming from, why they're thinking what they're thinking. We're coming to understand their point of view, but also to try to win them over to our point of view without making them feel disrespected or put down. For example, I imagine the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus about what it means to be born again. I imagine that was quite a robust discussion. So just in short, argument's bad. Healthy, robust discussion's good. So, back to our sermon. Let's take a brief look at the preceding verses. From verses 18 to 33 in chapter 9, we find four examples of Jesus restoring and healing people. And Matthew Cuthbert covered it quite wonderfully a couple of weeks ago when he preached. He raised the dead girl to life. A woman's 12-year-old medical problem was healed just by the fact that she touched the hem of his garment. The blind had their sight restored, and a demon-possessed man was set free. And the text goes on to say that the crowds were amazed, saying nothing like this has ever been seen before in Israel. But the priests and the Pharisees, it's the devil, it's the devil. He's doing it by the power of Satan. And what was Jesus' response? In verse 33, 35, we see Jesus just carrying on doing what Jesus does teaching the truth, proclaiming the gospel, and restoring the sick. In this narrative, Matthew doesn't record Jesus responding to the Pharisees at all. In other gospels, he talks about houses being divided against each other and not standing. But here he just doesn't respond he just carries on doing what he's doing. And if we flick ahead to chapter 10, verses 14, where Jesus is sending out the 12 disciples before him, he tells them, whoever doesn't receive your words, leave that city, knock the dust off your feet, and just carry on. 
Now I'll explain why this is important later. William Barclay makes the distinction between teaching the truth and proclaiming the gospel. Jesus was correcting false teaching that had crept into the nation of Israel, either from general misunderstanding, the fact that religious tradition was starting to become more important than what the scripture actually said, or deliberate false teaching as religious leaders of the day were trying to cement their own position, either politically, socially, or financially. Some of this starts to ring a little bit familiar to me. But at the same time, Jesus was proclaiming the fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament in the person of himself. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus was teaching out of the Torah, the books of Moses and the prophets, which today we call the Old Testament. There are those today who say that we only need the Gospels and the New Testament to preach Jesus Christ. Personally, I think this is a mistake. We need the Bible, Old and New Testament, as the whole of Scripture. And it's important as the whole of Scripture in teaching the truth of the what, why, and who Jesus is. To verse 36. We see that Jesus was doing this because he had compassion for the people, because they are distressed and dispirited, because they had no shepherd. The country was under the control of a foreign military regime, the Romans. They were laboring under false teaching, deceit, and lies. In other words, oppression. And with oppression comes a grinding down of the spirit. And with that comes sickness of the spirit and of the body. And Jesus comes teaching truth, bringing hope. Hope has been a big theme of today from the prayer meeting um, at the beginning of the service from what Carl um, was teaching when he was um, leading the worship. And now... Jesus comes teaching truth, bringing hope and healing to their and our infirmities and disease. Verse 37, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, there are three points I'd like to make from this verse. The first, obviously, the harvest exists. It's existed since Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And it's going to continue existing until Jesus comes again. We know this harvest, we all belong to this harvest. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all equal. All of us need our one-on-one meeting with the risen Christ. 
All of us need his truth, his healing, and his restoration. What we commonly refer, refer to as salvation. Second, the harvest belongs to God. Too many times I think we take the responsibility of the harvest onto ourselves. We have to sow the seed. We have to tender the crop. We have to reap that harvest. The mission becomes ours. The burden to convict and convert the sinner is ours. And I believe that's pride. The harvest belongs to God. It's the responsibility of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that brings conversion. Point number three. The workers belong to God. He will equip them for the work. It is for us to pray for them. Now we have workers sent out from this church. We have people working long term on the mission field overseas that we pray and support for. At the moment, as you've heard earlier, we have a team in Thailand on a short-term mission trip. At this point, I want to say hi to Pastor Paul, to the team. We can't wait to hear your testimonies about your journey and what God has done in you and around you in your time of Thailand. I was told I had to make a shout-out, and I was told that they would be watching this morning's service via the internet while they're away. And we also have people working in our immediate community through the Neighbourhood Trust. So for us, I, I hear you ask, we live in the harvest. We work in the harvest. It is all around us. It's in our homes. As a church, we have agreed as part of our vision for this year to be constantly praying for our families and friends and for our neighbours who don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. How many of us as parents have children who may have made a declaration when they were younger, but at this point they may have straight as adults or aren't quite walking the way that we thought a Christian life should be led? I know for my mother when she became a Christian, she prayed for 40 years for her sister, my auntie Ruth, before she became a Christian. Mum never gave up praying. The harvest is in our schools. It's the kid that you sit next to or the person that you ride the bus with every day. The harvest is in our workplace. It's with your workmates. The people that you meet on a daily or a regularly basis, or it's the people on your sports team. The people that we have weekly meaningful relationships with. Do we just ignore this harvest? Do we just pray for God to send out workers and that's it? No. As Christians, we are called to a life that is honoring to God. We are called to be different in the world around us. Not indifferent, just other than. 
We are meant to live a life that acts as a signpost to Jesus. Now, you've probably all heard the saying, in everything you do, preach the gospel of Christ. And if necessary, use words. This saying is usually used out of context and as an excuse not to verbally share the gospel. I'll just be honest for the moment. I don't know where this saying actually originated from. It's something I've heard almost all my life. It's been around, but I don't know who originally said it. People take, take it as an excuse to say, I'm not an evangelist, so I'll just show Jesus through my good works. Which is good. The problem is, people might just think, you're an awfully nice guy, but don't actually equate it to you being a Christian. The flip side of this is the guys that you used to see, well, you used to see them a lot, late 80s, early 90s. I don't know if anyone's seen the um, examples um, today. They're the guys that used to stand in the square or street corners with their Bible and start re reading the scripture. Then the disciples of John came to ask him, asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom, and they don't actually interact with anyone. They just read this gospel over the top of people's heads, scattering the seed where they may, and it's up to the Holy Spirit, whether it finds root and germinates. The truth is found in the tension of two opposing points. Now, that's the saying that I really like. It's one of my favorite sayings, and I try to live by it, to always see the different points of view and come to a conclusion somewhere in the middle that, to quote the Apostle Paul, seems right to me in the Holy Spirit. The way I see it is this. When we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell in us. And it's his power as we live, in our, as we live our lives in a relationship with, the Jesus, with Jesus Christ that draws people to us. And it's with these people that we are called to share our testimonies with. What God has done for us and to proclaim the truth of who Christ is. Now we are to do this intentionally. To know our thoughts, to know what it is that we're sharing, and share it. But not as a burden of we must sow the seed, we must sow the crop, but naturally out of our own relationship and salvation in Jesus Christ. If I use an example of myself, people at work and in my trade union, they know I'm a Christian. Now, I don't preach to them every day. I don't talk about Jesus to them every day. But I'm constantly amazed how many times people come up to me and say, hey, Paul, you're a Christian. What's your opinion of this? Or what does your church think about this? And so I tell them, you're right, I'm a Christian. This is why I believe in Jesus Christ. And this is what I believe the scripture says about this situation. Now, some Christians may not agree with me. They may come at it from a different angle. But this is what we, we believe in my church. 
And it always amazes me, I don't know why, but the amount of times that my words actually carry weight and they go away thinking about what I've said, I've changed someone's opinion, I've changed, I've affected someone's point of view, I've affected their life. And it's not because of me. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in me. I said earlier that I'd come back to why it was important that Jesus didn't respond to the Pharisees and why he told the disciples to shake the dust from their feet. Sometimes we feel the urge and the temptation to defend the gospel, to argue the gospel with those who would deny and challenge its truth. Now, as I've said before, we don't need to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction to the unbeliever. Only he has the power to bring truth and light into the darkness. It's our responsibility to create an atmosphere around us in which he can work. And that can only happen if we live in a fully immersed relationship with the risen Christ. Carl, if you'd like to bring the band up. So that's the sermon. Next question is, so what's our response to today's message? Maybe this is the first time you've heard the message of Jesus Christ. The simple gospel that Jesus came to earth. He teached, he ministered, he healed, he died on the cross for our sins that we might be forgiven, that we might come back into right relationship with God the Father, our Creator. Maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now and you feel the urge to respond. During this next song, I'd invite you to respond by coming up to the front where we have a prayer team who would love to pray with you. Maybe you're in the position now where you need healing and restoration. We would love to pray for you for that too. And for those of you who need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've already given your heart to Jesus Christ, but you feel burdened and distressed and want that freedom in your life that comes with the right relationship with him. Please gather someone around you, a sister or brother in Christ, to pray with you. Or maybe there's someone in your family that you want to pray for. Someone that you want Christ to reveal himself to. Please find someone to pray, pray with you for that too. But of course, you're always welcome to come down to the front to have someone pray for you, to seek prayer, to seek healing and restoration that only comes through Jesus Christ. So thank you, and Carl, over to you.